This podcast is brought to you by Prolongevity, the award-winning eight-week program that can transform the lives of people with prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, and many other lifestyle-related illnesses. Founded by Graham Phillips, the pharmacist who gave up drugs. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Prolongevity podcast. And I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. Jane Unwin, who I first got to know, uh, like many of my best pals and contacts, through public health collaboration. And Jen um, has um, increasingly highlighted concerns around food addiction and recently written a book called Fork in the Road. So that's the major focus of our discussion today. Uh, Jen's new book, all about it and all about food addiction. Welcome, Jen. (laughs) Hi, Graham. Yeah, great to be here. Um, Perhaps... um, you'd say a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah, I think uh, it, it's important that people uh, know a little bit about your background. You're a doctor, but you're not a, doc- a medical doctor, which is not... <laughs> any, do- I don't yeah. want to say that in any pejorative sense, because actually a medical doctor is, is, is actually a courtesy title. It doesn't mean very much. Uh, and people, everybody else is a doctor has had to do a PhD to get there. So um, <laughs> I think we should make that clear. <laughs> yeah, proper doctor. Um, <laughs> although kind of, there's a bit of a twist. There's a bit of a twist. So um, yeah, so I'm a, a clinical psychologist by training. And I worked for uh, well over 30 years in, in the NHS, helping people with actually chronic physical health problems. That was it's a bit of an unusual field. Most clinical psychologists obviously work in mental health or people with learning disabilities or those or older people. Um, so I worked in general hospitals and primary care, helping people with chronic physical health problems to have the best quality of life they could, because we know that there's an overlap with things like chronic pain, with with uh, diabetes, with lung diseases and mental health problems, you know, because it's it's depressing to be in chronic pain. So, um, yeah, so that that was that was my role in the in the NHS. And um when I qualified as a clinical psychologist, um, it was with a master's. That was how you did it back in the day. And then reasonably soon after I qualified, that changed and it became a, a professional doctorate. So people did three years practical training, but also had to do um, a piece of research. So I went and off and did my piece of research at uh, Hull University so I could sort of get upgraded <laughs> to... to uh, to a doctorate so it's a professional doctorate so it's not quite like a PhD it's not a medical doctor nor a PhD because that's three years pure research um the clinical psychology doctorate is um is its case report a practical work and and a piece of research but it's not qu- quite the massive thing that a, that a PhD can be so yeah it's interesting when it comes to psychologists and psychiatrists and people often get confused about that and um, what was the subject of, of that research at the time? Right. So, yes, fortunately, I got to do something I was um, super interested in. Um, so I'd been working in, in a big hospital and I'd noticed that um, as, as, as psychologists and health professionals, obviously, we, we want to focus on the people who are who are struggling or not doing so well or have worse symptoms and all our sort of focus gets gets paid to them. But I did notice that it, in a large hospital where 
thousands of people were coming through, many of whom who'd had extremely traumatic or, or, or life-changing experiences or diagnoses. Actually, the vast, the vast majority of people do incredibly well, <laughs> you know, with those kinds of challenges. And yeah. so that that really struck me. And I wanted to sort of I got interested in in a field called positive psychology, which is really about human flourishing and how we can help people to, you know, kind of achieve their best and, and get the best well-being and quality of life and so on. And it occurred to me to to look at what are the characteristics of people who who are doing well with these challenges so that perhaps we can learn something of how to help those who struggle rather than focusing on all the people with difficulties and what it is is it that defines them so it's a kind of a slight sort of flip philosophically if you like so i'm um, pulling on the positive psychology side um I, I was very interested in the role of a concept which is hope <laughs> and how, how you might define that and how uh, what difference it makes to people and then obviously how you might intervene to make to help people to be more hopeful it, if if indeed it turned out to be a uh, a useful concept but I kind of already knew it would be because I'd looked at a lot mm. of research particularly by a chap called S-N-Y-D-E-R Snyder in the States who wrote some amazing papers on on this idea and and particularly in healthcare but in in all kinds of fields really so i looked at people who'd were were going to have a, a lower limb amputation so it was a kind of in a way a standard traumatic thing so they all had the same experience if you like in that way and assessed people beforehand followed them through to see who who had adjusted well who had good quality of life good mobility good mental health, you know, six months down down the line. Um, so it was a prospective study. And um, one of the things that I'd measured was hope, but we measured loads of other things as well. But the thing that was the best predictor, you know, not gender, not age, not how much of your leg you had amputated, not the kind of reason you had it amputated, um, but how, how hopeful you were at the beginning that you could sort of get on with your life in a meaningful way, despite having this experience, seemed to be... Uh, the breast predictor so then of course i'm yeah then that's been the rest of my career really super interested in hope and how to engender that in in other people and it it's um it just fits so well with the, the work that we're all doing around lifestyle because the people who are more hopeful do look after themselves better they're more likely to engage and change and change the behavior for the hope of a, of a better future and more able to do that so i think if we can while we're trying to help people with lifestyle interventions if we can use some techniques which enhance their hopefulness of being able to um you know to meet meet to set some goals to meet their goals to 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 notice what's working and to get to a better place well that that's just the, the icing on the cake in a way and we know don't we that i mean you'll know yourself having worked all these years sort of public facing that just giving people information isn't isn't sufficient <laughs> for behavior no. change very but, occasionally yes people will take that information and run with it on the whole we give loads of advice and information and and i mean if 
if information worked, nobody would smoke because it's on the side of the pack. Yeah. Don't smoke, you're going to lose your leg or, or die of cancer. And, and still people do. So we need to be a little bit more. It's so right, because all of us as health professionals, and I think pharmacy particularly, because the pharmacy training has a much greater percentage of the science and a smaller aspect of clinical, although that's improved since, since I qualified. My younger mm. colleagues are much better clinicians, I think. I think, well, I know all this stuff. If I just get this stuff into their head, that's it. <laughs> Why yeah. doesn't it <laughs> like a black box, you know, like yeah, I'll yeah. just keep what it. What I've got to do is download it. They'll know what I fine. know and then it'll all be fine. <laughs> exactly, because we don't yeah. understand what 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 their motivation is, what mm. their goals are. I mean, it does it does occasionally work if things align, you know, if you just give that information at the right time in somebody's life when they're just ready to to hear it and, and willing to follow it. I'm not saying that information is pointless because obviously what a lot of David and I do is we combine the two. So we give the information about physiology and insulin and well, he is, but then we're, we're dovetailing it with the sort of motivational stuff to just, just to, you know, to give people the, the best chance really of being able to sort of make those, those changes. And again, it's, you know, I mean, none of it's magic. We can, we can do the best, you know, evidence-based psychology things in the world and still some people really struggle so it's this kind of double thing then about you said you know tell everybody about yourself or that's the sort of academic clinical side of it and then there's the personal side which is that you know I absolutely identify as a as a food addict myself and I had yo-yo dieted all my life even after I find so found low carb and that made a massive difference to me um, which segues nicely into my next question, which was this hope that you do, it appears in the book, it's a hopeful guide. So that kind of original research has played right up to today. You, you mentioned David, who um, is one of my heroes and one of my inspirations. And the two of you are just like, a you know, put the two of you in a liquidizer, you've got the perfection. <laughs> um, for those who don't know... Um, David is is he tweets as at low carb GP uh, and that's what he is. Tell us then a little bit your own health journey because um, mm -hmm. I'm well aware that you've kind of shrunken and you know exploded <laughs> over time as yeah. so many of us. So what was your journey like? That because uh, you've obviously in a good place now, but it didn't happen overnight, and you had your own yeah. traumas and, and and all of that along the way. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, still now have have to sort of pay attention to everything. You know, there's there's no no point as a as a food addict where you kind of relax your guard because you, you you're gonna be right right well not right back where you started, but really struggling, you know, very quickly. So um I think I'm pretty typical actually of a lot of people with this problem. So uh as a very young child, my earliest memories are are of sweet and carbohydrate foods and how I could get my hands on them <laughs> so I think a lot of us are kind of yeah. born like this and there's some evidence of that there is quite a bit of evidence of quite a big genetic effect in this in this sort of genetic um leaning to, towards addiction any kind of addiction um yeah. oftentimes when I interview people we find that they have parents uh, grandparents siblings with with addiction problems if it's not food it's alcohol you know drugs or nicotine but there's you know this addiction propensity in the brain seems to sort of run in families there seems to be perhaps something to do with how 
how we respond, you know, in terms of dopamine signaling, you know, that we don't quite know yet, but something like that. So, yes, yeah, so earliest memories and then putting on weight, putting on weight. Um, were, were you a fat kid? I was. And of course, that was quite unusual back in the day. You know, yeah. Dave and I were talking about this recently in the in the 60s. Um, there, there weren't many overweight kids, not like there are now. I was a fat kid. Heart. Were you as uh, well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm Jewish and there's this, well, off, often repeated Jewish joke. They tried to kill us. They failed. Let's eat. Um, <laughs> yes, food is yes. very, very central to absolutely any any Jewish celebration. And I always, yeah. you know, joke with my, my Muslim uh, friends and colleagues that, you know, they fast for a month, right? We have one fast day a year, and my God, the fuss we make, you know, <laughs> we just can't do it. I mean, that's yeah. not quite true. But... No, but it, it kind of is the point, because I, I think cultural factors are an, another incredibly yeah. powerful. And, and of course, now what's happened is that the whole culture's gone towards this this problem unfortunately because of the the you know the availability of food and so on i don't know about you but i i think that does actually affect you for the rest of your life you have this sort of weird i have a real problem with body image and sort of knowing knowing how <laughs> how big i am i just i just can't tell if i'm if i'm thin i still think i'm fat if i'm overweight i still think i'm you know not it's, it, anyway it's very confusing so yeah fat fat kid and then i because i went to a girls school i discovered the delights of dieting and also i should say my mother was definitely a food addict she wouldn't she's not here anymore but she wouldn't not have denied it she definitely was she taught me how to diet you know in there was some really crazy diets in the 70s and 80s egg and grapefruit um all kinds of weird powders and business so i'm sure that did my metabolism no no favors but i have successfully dieted as you've said all my life i've kind of got overweight then dieted successfully through sort of sheer sheer grit but then you can't you can't live like that so you you kind of go bigger again so that went on and of course as a psychologist that i was kind of i was kind of ashamed of it really that i couldn't understand or control this one aspect you know the rest of my life was was you know like a dream really and my career and you know the family and everything but really this one part of my life it was just a mystery to me and then we found low carbon that as I say that that really helped because of course um I now know that abs abstinence from sugars flowers and ultra processed foods is, is the way um yeah. but the the problem is that with keto low carb there are still lots of things which tickle the 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 dopamine receptors that that we need to stay away from and they're things like i mean this isn't everybody so don't if you're listening and you think this might be you don't get scared um but dairy can be problematic nuts and definitely sweeteners so a lot of keto low carb you know all this low carb baking or um sort of uh people tend to eat quite a lot of cheese and dairy because they're delicious and they're kind of allowed on low carb so th- yeah. those can become problematic for us so my weight still I still wasn't in definitely not in 100 percent control of of my weight really so so that I still went a bit up and down and then I heard Bitten Johnson talking on the diet doctor uh website which is an amazing website if people don't already know about it and she's the sort of probably the international internationally best qualified clinician in in sugar she calls it sugar addiction yeah um and i heard this term 
sugar addiction and I thought oh my god that's me <laughs> it complete everything sort of fell into place it was bitten that was the final piece of the jigsaw for you yeah 100% so when I retired I took early retirement from the NHS at 55 and thought right I'm gonna find out everything there is to find out so bitten does a fantastic training holistic addiction medicine training um and so I did that. And that's how I met Heidi, that other people who know the PhD will know. Heidi Yeva, she's a nutritionist. We we trained with Bitten at the same time and have since been working together in the UK, um, running a, a study, which I can talk about, but also running weekends um, based on the same uh, programme in, in the Lake District. And we've got one coming up in, in November, actually, if anyone's interested. And the profits for that go to the PhD and we run the groups for donations to the PHC. So uh, everything I do now is <laughs> is to to fund the good works of the PHC. I was going to go on to PHC, but you've mentioned it several times. So um, as you know, I've recently joined the board of trustees of the PHC. It's an organisation about which I'm I'm passionate, um, and I was involved at an early stage. But you and David were very involved in the creation. So just give us a quick two or three minutes on the PHC for those who don't know about it, because I. Whenever I can plug it, I always do. And let mm. me emphasize, I mean, you know, oh, she's got a book to sell. Yeah, but the, you're not benefiting from the book. All of it's going to PHC. Yeah, yes. So the public health collaboration. So what happened was I found low calm. I'm telling David, I'm reading out of John Briffer's book, Escape the Diet Trap. And I'm reading to him, well, the, did you know there's more glucose in a in a slice of bread than there is in the same weight of sugar or whatever and he's going well that can't be right that's just wrong you know I can't believe that's right so uh and and then he saw what a difference it made to me and how, how well I did um and of course naturally because I tend to do the cooking and everything so naturally he's having to go a bit low carb as well and he's yeah. starting to to notice some some benefits although I did it like cold turkey he, he sort of slid into it noticed benefits at the same time he was really burnt out fed up with with general practice because everybody was getting fatter sicker you know he was just adding medications and people weren't getting any better so he was kind of thinking of finishing and then we had a conversation you know well how about because we'd never actually worked together and as you say our skills are so complementary really we'd often talked about you know doing things and never actually done anything so I, we said well why don't we you know wouldn't it be great to work together on a project at the practice, which um, would be about teaching? We thought we'll start with pre-diabetics because they're not at all scary in any way and they're not on medication. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll teach them about low carbon. We'll support them. We'll do a group because I always uh, professionally work, work with groups. I'm a big fan of working in groups. I think they have a certain magic beyond the sort of one-to-one -one consultations. Uh, David was terrified at the idea of running a group but I said it's fine I'll deal with all of that you know you deal with the, the weighing the measuring the HbA1c's and all of that so we started that and we had we were very naive and had no idea that we were doing something controversial it made complete sense to us scientifically so we thought it was fine and um, people were, were horrified the dietitian in the practice walked out never came never came back was never seen again um, <laughs> David spoke about the project at a couple of um sort of di professional uh, diabetes professional uh events and got booed and uh, backs his back turned on him and we were yeah. we were utterly utterly shocked by this uh yeah. by, by this reaction um 
but undaunted and undinted because we were getting the most amazing results and as people know or they can they can google there's several papers now from the project which is which is sort of ongoing and all the doctors in the practice now all the practice nurses um they they all understand and and, and sort of practice in this way so um there's been to date the latest figure i heard but it might be more it's 117 drug free remissions um and 20 percent of the whole diabetic register at norwood 9,000 patients is um total is is in drug free remission so he's probably got the best results possibly in, in the world of the primary care i mean i know virtu have got some amazing results but that's a sort of funded program well we basically did it on we didn't have a grant we, we just did it in our own time in the evenings and uh to so say it's kind of ongoing so right so that's so so that was the background so the, at the point where we were very isolated and people were saying we were lunatics we did know some other people in the space <laughs> like at the time um Rangan Chatterjee, um, obviously Asim was was around. Um, I'm trying to think who was there in the beginning. Joanne Reynolds and uh, people like that, and obviously Sam. And and Sam approached us, and he was looking to to do something like this. And we, uh, you know, and we said, well, you know, definitely count us in. And the first conference in in Birmingham all those years ago was, I think it's about eight years ago now, was just such a lovely event because it was the first time we'd been anywhere. Oh, Trudy Deacon was it right from the beginning, and and she won't mind me saying she was actually she actually cried after she gave her talk because we were all clapping, and she said, "I've never been anywhere where people have had such a lovely reception." We had the fixing dad people were there. It was really lovely, and it I mean, it's the PhD has retained that same atmosphere really of people trying to kind of spread just spread the information that this lifestyle is i mean it's the most in, incredible thing really in terms of a range of physical and mental health problems so i've just got back from keto live in um in switzerland and they had a whole day on mental health and and, and keto and it's just amazing some of the results and again it's you know not saying it's a panacea for everything but there's been some incredible research going on Actually, he'd be a good guy to interview. Ian Campbell up in up in Scotland. I don't know if you come across. I know him from years ago, so I must do that. Yeah. From, yeah, from yeah. He's doing this research on, yeah. on bipolar. Um, yeah. And he has a an amazing program called Bipolar Cast. It just um, seemed like a good idea to set up a, a charity that was going to try and promote this kind of information and counter <laughs> the low fat, high carb general public health advice that you know the more we looked into the science um the wronger it seemed to be and of course i i knew from my own personal experience that I, that had been the wrong advice for me all my life and that's why i wrote the book really I, I wrote it um to be accessible i can understand it read it and understand it at the age of 12 myself i wanted something that if that book had existed when i was that age i wouldn't have had to go through all of that heartache and and probably you know harm to my physical health as well over the years so um yeah so that that was why i wrote the book really just to get the information out there to people and as you say it's a hopeful guide which kind of segues nicely into the opening um and it's it's really cheap at the minute as well so if people want to buy it now is the time amazon do these things where they sort of reduce the price occasionally 
And then the other thing to say, because I don't know if you've seen it, just out, hot off the press, is the Fork in the Road 100-Day Journey to Food Freedom Personal Progress Journal. And this has a double page spread for every day. Um, it sort of links to Fork in the Road. So it's so you can journal for 100 days while you're, you know, trying to make the changes that, that are described in, in the book. And um, we've had some really nice reactions about it so far that's on amazon as well now the next project is to do um a workbook that you exercises you can work through that are based on the book but also based on heidi and i's um work that we've this research we've been doing and um what seems to work in in group settings we're going to do a workbook so people can sort of work through it in their own time so that's the next project and amazon is the best place to go to get all of that Yes, I'm afraid it's the only place for people who hate Amazon um, because it's just the easiest way to do it. You, you can self-publish. So the, the fantastic designer, um, Michael and Kiki at Creative Key, who are in America, um, we've put it up. So the PHC has a Kindle publishing um, account because, of course, they did the Real Food Rocks cookbook back in the day, which is still available. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've uh, we've published it through there. So you just you just you pay your money. The money comes to the PHC and then um, but Amazon will send you the book. So it just means we don't have to bother with postage and faffing around. It's all it's just the easiest way to do it, really. If you do, I do attend the PHC conference and buy it direct from the author and even get get her to sign it for you. <laughs> exactly. Or like this week. I don't know when this will go out, but uh, this weekend we're at Kestival and I'll take some down there. So wherever we go. Oh, we it's not a book in the sense that I've ever understood a book. And it's it's somewhere between a book and a pamphlet, and it's quite hard to convey it because I, you know, I, as you know, on on the podcast, we've had lots of uh, really leading thinkers, big brains, and they've written books. Um, just describe it because I want people to get a sense of what it is because it's not a, you know, if you think about a book in, in yeah. its conventional sense, it's got its own a different kind of layout, a different structure, a whole different nuance about it, which I think. I've never seen anything quite like it. It makes it really interesting and <laughs> Thank uh, really you. engaging. Yeah, so I think, so as I say, the idea really was that it's definitely aimed at, at the general public or, you know, who who might sort of see it and think, um, you know, yes, I've <laughs> this is my problem. I need to know some stuff. So it's not, um, although I've kind of summarised the, the science as I understand it I haven't you know there's not great long lists of references or very detailed stuff because I'm um, like you I've read a lot of books like that but really I just wanted to cut to the chase and, and tell me what to do <laughs> give me some yeah. ideas um so so David explains the the physiology of uh he does a sort of um like the introductory chapter with um the physiology of 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 insulin and also we do describe the, in a sense, the sort of biochemistry as to, you know, why is it that some of us behave in this way that's actually sort of harmful despite our best intentions? What is it in the brain that's going on? Because I think once people understand that, it helps them to, to not feel ashamed and self-blaming. You know, they can just think, Oh right, I get it now. My brain's been hijacked by processed food. I, you know, now I know what to do about it. It's not, it's not my fault. It's kind of an yeah. that empowering thing. There's a chapter on, you know, are, are you actually a, 
a food addict because obviously with the kind of food that's around these days a lot of people do do overeat or they you know they eat things on occasion when they shouldn't and they say oh oh i'm addicted to chocolate but they might you know it is only maybe 10 to 15 percent of the population although that's quite a lot you know that's probably five million adults in the uk yeah. um, but there's only a proportion of us who who really have this problem where we really really can't moderate you know so so david was probably bordering on type two when we started doing the research he was probably a little bit overweight um and he can overindulge in stuff but he can equally stop, you know. So if we get back from a holiday and he's he's been going a little bit over the top with the the drink and the desserts, not we never do that now. But back in the day, he'd get back on Monday. He was straight back on it. Well, I, I would take me ages to try and get back. You know, once I was eating those foods, it took me ages to try and try and get out of it again. So I'm a I'm a proper rock bottom food addict whereas whereas he's more well Bitten Johnson called him a harmful user rather than a you know a, a hardened food addict so um yes there's that distinction so in the book we there's um we go through the criteria so an easy way to remember the six criteria from the WHO you know basically substance use disorder which is addiction of course I mean we should caveat that there isn't a recognized condition of food addiction yet um, there's obviously alcohol addiction, drug addiction, addiction to other substances, and those are the criteria that we've taken. But I think you'll see when I describe them how perfectly they map on for some of us to, to the behaviour that we have. So CRAVED is, is, is the acronym that we, we're using now, um, Heidi and I. Um, and C is for basically cravings and compulsion. So it's this idea that you have cravings and, and compulsions that are so... so strong that you can't resist them so even though you say to yourself monday morning no biscuits today you know by tea time you're <laughs> you're you're so craving and you you know you can almost sort of watch your hand go to the biscuit barrel despite saying to yourself i don't want to do that today and, and then you've you've done it kind of thing so c is for compulsions and craving r is reaching for more which is you know not that not just reaching for one biscuit is, is never enough for us we always end up eating more than we intended um you know we'll say oh i'll i'll open that i'll open that packet and i'll just have two well it's never going to happen if you're <laughs> never ever going to happen if you've got a food addiction problem so reaching for more a is activities neglected and this is the effect where the more you get drawn into the the sugars and the carbohydrates and the processed foods the less you do of other things in your life so you're tending to give up hobbies tending to give up socializing you know withdrawing from people um just life getting more and more focused around the, the food so that's a v is for volume and this is um finding it really hard to just moderate the 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 volume of of anything you know um one slice of cake never enough you know it's always having to to be more e is for exclusion and this is to capture the idea of sort of withdrawal symptoms so if you try and stop and give it up you experience shakiness headaches gastrointestinal problems grumpiness um anxiety panic attacks that kind of thing could be any could be any of those so um and then d which for me is the the really defining one is is continued use despite knowledge of damage deeper damage um and this is where you know it's gone way past 
the point of you knowing you sh you should do something different and trying to do something different but but being unable to stop and, and knowing that it's harming your mental or physical health which of course people with type 2 diabetes you know they they often do they know they shouldn't eat these things but they you know find it really hard not to or you know in my own case um obviously no knowing that i would put on weight and feel more depressed if i ate these things but just in the moment um continuing to to do that so yeah craved is the six are the six criteria and if you've got three or more then that indicates a, a probable Probable. So um, I don't want to get into the weeds uh, of the physiology of addiction, but I think we should kind of say something about it. You've kind of covered it in the crave thing, but what is addiction? So there's actually several mechanisms with food addiction, probably all, all interacting. But the, the main one in any addiction um, we know is, is to do with dopamine, which is... Um, a neurotransmitter involved in motivation and um, kind of kind of being driven to drive and motivation. So obviously we, we need it and we needed it to survive. And we, you know, it's a, it's a major part of our survival mechanism in, in the primitive brain. We are driven to do things which will preserve our lives and the, the continuation of the, of the species. And, we were driven, particularly in the autumn, to overeat um, foods that were s sweet or, you know, like nuts and things like that, that were calorific so that we could put on weight and survive the, the autumn. And we know that those foods don't have the same. Yeah, so one of the other mechanisms is we know those foods don't have the same off mechanism as yeah. things like meat and, and fat. So we can actually continue to eat them beyond, we don't get a sort of satiety uh, signal. So I always see it that my ancestors were, that's why I'm here, you know, they were great survivors. They were the ones elbowing their way to the, the front of the uh, of the, the queue, the nut tree uh, or the, 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 the fruit tree or whatever. And we're able to sort of eat enough to, to survive the winter. Um, there are other neurotransmitters involved. So another one is serotonin, which is the sort of happy, relaxed hormone. Yeah. And the process there is when we have something sugary, we know that our insulin goes up to deal with that sugar and, you know, get, get it out of the bloodstream. And an interesting thing happens when insulin is high and that's the, the precursor to serotonin, which is tryptophan, interestingly, get through the blood brain barrier more easily and so tryptophan goes into the brain and makes more serotonin and that's the sort of the post-Christmas lunch happy sleepy uh feeling and sort of plays into you know people when they say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a stress eater or you know if if things are upsetting I kind of eat to calm myself down um that, that probably plays into that mechanism that the difficulty is that these high levels of dopamine and serotonin the the brain doesn't really like that we like it because we feel great the brain doesn't really like it and like everything in the body homeostasis it tries to rebalance by knocking out a few receptors so you will end up with fewer dopamine and serotonin uh, receptors every time you you do that and of course you'll see that that's not a great idea because we all want motivation and we all want 
relaxation and happiness. Um, so the trap is then that to get that dopamine and serotonin, people eat more, as I've already said, is one of the symptoms. Is you then need two slices of cake, three slices of cake to get the same feeling or to get rid of the withdrawal symptoms. Um, and every time you do that, your brain is actually, so you're digging yourself a, a deeper hole. And we do know that high sugar diets are linked with depression and anxiety yeah. and other mental health problems. That's that's a really, you know, accepted finding that high sugar diets are bad for your mental health. And and that's why I think so. Um, it's, it is difficult to get out of it. But I think if people know this information, they've sort of got that explanation as to why they're feeling you know, more and more depressed and, and hopeless. And there is there is this hope, there is hope of a, of a way out. If you can, exactly like alcohol, you know where the, 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 the solution is abstinence, it's, it's difficult because we have to eat, <laughs> um, but we don't have to eat those things that really cause these, these sort of spikes of, of these um, neurotransmitters in the brain. So, so eating in an abstinent way for us avoiding our own personal drug foods they're nearly always sugar grains and ultra processed food sometimes as i say some other things so over time for me it had cheese and nuts have become uh, more more problematic so working out a food plan that you know works for us and doesn't doesn't lead to that those sorts of cravings you know it's a good healthy food plan uh, with all the things that you need for a healthy brain and body uh, but none of the things that are going to uh, spark you off. I think it's very difficult. I think food addiction is probably the most difficult because you can't you can't avoid you can avoid cigarettes, booze, drugs that we have to eat. And, and also sugar is the only psychoactive drug that we give, give kids. We don't give them alcohol, nicotine and, and booze. Our brains are already, you know, they're already getting molded. Yeah. And the sort of epigenetic change. So yeah. um, it, it... If the mother, if the uterus is a kind of high sugar uterus, you end up with a baby predisposed. And so uh, they, yes. they've shown this certainly in rat studies that each generation becomes more uh, more addicted. I mean, you could yes. do that in studies, but it might take 180 years. Whereas, you, you know, you, there's a debate about how much you can extrapolate between other mammalian studies. But the principle is well founded, I think. There has been some research showing that for every adult that, that we have now with a food addiction problem, there's going to be two children growing up Correct. with that Absolutely. difficulty. I mean, even if there isn't epigenetics, there's there's the whole environment and cultural problem where we've sort of accepted that kids drink Coca-Cola and eat Frosties for breakfast. And then, you know, they might have a, a sandwich for lunch and a pizza for tea. And they've eaten carbs with their carbs with their carbs. And you Absolutely. can't build a body and a brain unless you've got um protein and um and the right fats our brains are made of fat mostly <laughs> and as a community pharmacist of course i mean i've been helping uh, people quit smoking for at least 30 years so i'm very familiar with smoking as an addiction and we see plenty of people with alcohol addiction and the, the resultant medication so um yeah i'm very familiar if you like um, and at particular stages in my professional life, I've worked extensively with addicts. Yes. Um, but there's no such thing as food addiction, is there? It doesn't exist. Exactly. And let's just say a little bit about the classification of diseases and what we think is going on in all of that. What's going on? Well, there, I mean, to be fair, um, there isn't a lot of research on food addiction. There, There is coming. 
there's hardly any on treatment and that's why we're we're doing this study that we're doing um and there's sort of argument about whether you can prove that people get withdrawals from sugar you know should you call it sugar addiction should you call it food addiction? what is it ultra processed food addiction? what 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 do you kind yeah. of call this beast how do you classify it so i suppose to be fair there probably is more science to be done but also so heidi um Yeva, who i've already mentioned did coordinate us putting a bid to the who to to get this category included in in the icd and they came back with various reasons why it wouldn't be but um one of the key ones which we thought was interesting was it's going to be it would be very difficult <laughs> in terms of the it it would be a massive challenge to to the food industry if we said that sugar to be addictive i think we i think we're 30 or 40 years behind the cigarettes because yeah. it took a while till it was accepted that cigarettes 40 were, years were addictive. yeah and they 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 fought it and fought it and fought it yeah. successfully for a long time um yeah. I, I I think we've we've got quite the battle on our hands. I would really hope that it happens in my lifetime, and and we we we're, we're hoping to maybe have a conference next year in the states and involve a lot of the researchers and campaigners uh, and clinicians and try and get the main one of the main challenges will be to get everybody together and get some consensus um, because that you know as I say there there are there are these disputes about whether. You know, we say sugar addiction because that's probably the key so psychoactive substance. Is there enough yeah. evidence for that? Um, rather than perhaps call it food addiction because people say, well, you know, broccoli isn't addictive, um, which is which is probably true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's um, there's there's a lot of work to be done. And, and, you know, I'm really glad that the PHC is sort of taking on the campaign. And, and, and last year we had this one day conference linked to the phc with people like bitten and the amazing paul early speaking so i would yes. highly recommend when that when the videos go up if anybody's interested definitely watch yeah. um bitten's um and paul early's uh talks you'll get a lot more detail yeah on the mechanisms and so on now you've touched on this but it just in general terms if you think you may be food addicted mm -hmm. What would the warning so I mean, you can go through the trade mnemonic, but just sort of in a global sense, yeah. what does it look like? I think, you know, if you're spending most of your day thinking about food, um, what you want to eat, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, if you're making multiple attempts to sort of try to, you know, you, you know, you know, your diet's harming you, but you're making, you're making attempts to try and change it and and you know maybe not maybe not doing so well you know if particularly if you've got a condition like anxiety depression type 2 diabetes um maybe irritable bowel any of these things that can be kind of worsened by by, by diet and and you're not you're not succeeding um i mean those those would all be hints to me and you know maybe like me um you know putting on weight losing weight putting on weight losing weight <laughs> I mean, a lot of people do that. They're not all food addicts, but, you know, many of us are. Yeah. And so if you are one of those people, what, what should their first step be? Well, actually, I mean, this sounds a bit pompous, but I, I would probably read the book just to see, you know, and to see if it resonates with you. And the difficulty, of course, is that um, because it's not a recognised condition, there aren't recognised clinics or, or or you know if you if you go to an eating disorders clinic they 
more have the approach that learning to moderate what you eat and being able to sort of eat a bit of everything and because that's never going to work for someone like me um if you if you go to an addiction clinic they're used to working with alcohol like you say nicotine um they've they've never worked with people with food addiction so they wouldn't quite know what to do um or, or you might end up getting in the mental health system. So I'm, I'm not sure in that way. Now, there are quite a lot now of people who've sort of trained through Britain and, and, and other places who've, who are setting up programmes. So as I say, Heidi and I have got this, we've got a weekend coming up in November. Um, if anyone's interested, get in touch. There's there's a great group in, in America that are also trained at the same time as us called Sugar X Global. Dave Wolf, Anna Fruling and um, Judy Wolf. Yeah. And um, they're great. There's great information that they, that they give. Um, there's a number of sort of free support groups as well. So if you're just trying to kind of do this on your own, um, I have a clubhouse on a Wednesday night. So it's tonight yeah. actually because we're recording this on a Wednesday. 6pm every Wednesday called Fork in the Road. And Anna ruling comes to that uh, and also Jane Steele who also trained at the same time as me and that's a sort of sometimes we have speakers sometimes we have just a bit of chat and chat. get people to come up and join in so there's clubhouse there um there's a, some uh, lists of other websites and resources also in the back of fork in the road there yeah. um or you can go on if you want some one-to-one help if you go on bitten johnson's website bittensaddiction.com She's got a list of all the people that she's trained in all the countries um, and what they offer. So you can you can get properly assessed or you can get involved in some treatment. But obviously, unfortunately, you know, some of the some of the that most of those people will be charging a certain a yeah. certain fee um, yeah. um, because it's not available. There's nothing much available on the NHS. Yeah. We're hoping to train, you know, some ambassadors at some point to incorporate some of this knowledge into their into their groups um so that we can sort of spread the word and i as you know one of my passions about community pharmacy is the public health role and virtually every pharmacy uh, in england now is an accredited uh, healthy living pharmacy and we've shown that we can be very effective certainly in smoking Mm -hmm. cessation and behavior change and An ambition of mine would be to so, uh, and these are not the pharmacists; they're generally the pharmacy team to the front-facing yeah. staff. And if we could train a hundred of those at a certain level, just imagine. So that's yeah. kind of we're trying. You know, we've got this um, um, pharmacy lecture. We're trying to do interesting stuff there. So that's very much you know on, on my list of things to try and see if we can we can pioneer some great. stuff. Mm. Um, so we all know what the typical Western diet looks like, uh, and you've described that. Um, there are some recipes in the book, and without trying to go through mm-hmm. them, just give us a sense of, of what the recipes look like in the book. So what we advise people is to um, have a good amount of protein, basically, because you, you need that for the this body and brain and for satiety. So, you know, base, base your meals on a, on a nice, you know, piece of piece of protein, and you know maybe maybe a bit of added fat if if you what you've chosen like a chicken isn't isn't very fatty and then just some low carb you know vegetables uh, alongside so most most of the uh, recipes are sort of based on that some have got a little bit of dairy in but we tried to sort of make them not too dairy and, and, yeah. and nutty um, people 
with food addiction should be careful with with fasting i've kind of went down this road and um it can kind of work for a while but <laughs> then it can sort of backfire on you so um most people we recommend to start with with three meals a day and then if you you know if you're not hungry in the morning obviously you know just you can drop the breakfast and go down to two meals a day but uh, try not to have any snacking and avoid those those foods that that we've talked about um yeah so we've got things like i make a i make a chicken curry with with ghee so it's a nice sort of meaty fatty curry and you can have that with cauliflower rice it's the old staple isn't it yeah Yes, I remember that one. Um, that's that's on my list. <laughs> yeah, it's quite quite a meaty diet. <laughs> You've talked a bit about dieting in in the past and your kind of yo-yoing diet. So, um, what did your diet used to look like historically, and um, what does it kind of look like today? <laughs> oh gosh, yes. Well, so it would have depended what phase I was in. So if I was in a sort of dieting phase, you know, I'd be doing something like Weight Watchers or slimming world or something like that and sort of trying to stick to that so it would be i can remember um i used to drive to work quite early because i had a bit of a drive so i would take um and this i thought was good uh a, a brown bread banana sandwich with a bit of cinnamon on and i'd eat healthy it whole grains and healthy lots of grains. healthy potassium what could possibly go wrong what could go wrong apart from the yeah. fact that i was starving hungry by half 10 in the morning yeah. so then i'd have to sort of hang on and try uh, wait till I ate my pitta my a whole wheat pitta with hummus and uh, a bit of bit of shredded carrot in at lunchtime again thought it was healthy you'll notice I haven't had hardly any apart from the chickpeas and the pitta I haven't had any protein so far yeah. and then I'd get home in the evening and I'd have made we made something for the kids so it might be like a uh, a, a pasta bolognese bake would be an example so I'd I'd have a tiny bit of protein there but uh, pasta again so that would be typical and I would think I was doing all right there yeah whole grains and fruit is spot on lots of veg and so on yeah, yeah. so there are these days um I'm 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 sort of proxy carnivore if you like so I might have um I'm trying to think what I had yesterday duck Duck breasts. I might have a. I might have a. I might have a steak later. I have bacon and eggs. Um, cause I do like things like lamb shanks and and things like that. So it, I mean, people might see that as very limited, but it's very delicious. <laughs> and so it, it's very heavily meat based. Is it exclusively meat, or do you add some green veg or anything like that? Um, yeah, I go. I go through phases. So I'm. I'm. I'm currently because I've. I've been away, so I've kind of slightly lost my complete focus. So I'm just having a bit of a carnivore week. So I'm just eating meat and fat this week. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'd often would have roasted cauliflower or green beans or, you know, spinach or, you know, things things like that. And David likes, uh, he quite likes a lot of veg. So I, I would often cook it for him anyway, even if I wasn't having it. You know, roasted Mediterranean vegetables with a, with, with some lamb or something like that. Yeah. Well, something's clearly going right, because I reckon I've known the two of you for about five years. And in the five years I've known you, I reckon you both look 10 years younger. So something's <laughs> working out. Nice. I think <laughs> for, for sure, when I and I've put a couple of pictures on Twitter of me, like 36 and 56 and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, I feel mentally and physically so much better than I did in my late 30s and I'm I'm now 58 
and um yeah lots of things are better i have no aches and pains you know i, I sleep well i can do I, i've just got back from boot can i do a boot camp three or four times a week i run twice a week with david so um yeah it's 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 definitely possible to exercise without carbohydrate if anyone's wondering there's a bit of an adaption period but when you're yeah, in it you're, you're fine well i had ian lake on the podcast we just released it this week and he talked about the zero five one hundred um, yes. so if anyone doubts that you can run 100 miles fasted over five days um and you'll be perfectly fine do look at that podcast fantastic um is there anything that i haven't asked you um that you feel we should cover i think i th i think yeah i'm pretty sure we've covered all the we've talked about you know what does it look like what would you kind of do about it um i yeah it's it, it's one of those things that you, you have to keep working at it really. And um, I think joining joining community, I probably should have emphasized that slightly more. I think joining a community and having yeah. that support is really important. Some sort of a group, some sort of a, even if it's online, um, it's quite difficult to do this stuff alone. And you're often the only person in your, your family who has this kind of weirdness. So they yeah. don't always understand that you can't. Yeah. All our friends think we're mad, Karen and me. They think we're mad, but they kind of accept it now. Exactly, they'll accept it. Um, but yeah, it's it's nice it's nice to be in a group of people and not feel mad. You know, like feel like everybody's you know doing the same. That's what's quite nice about the clubhouse yeah, on a Wednesday. We're all in the same boat. And um, I mean, yeah, certainly from my perspective, you know, I was a fat and hungry kid. I did all the AO diet. I was a fat and hungry adult, and I well remember. At the end of breakfast, I'd still feel hungry. In fact, I'd feel hungrier at the end of breakfast than at the than start. Than when you started, yeah. Yeah. Frosties, for example, yeah. And <laughs> it was, well, it was toast and marmalade um, mm. and maybe some orange juice. Um, yeah. And then, like, two hours later, I'd be starving. And so I'd have a big lunch. And at the end of lunch, I'd be weirdly looking forward to supper. Yeah. So I spent my whole life, the fatter I got, the hungrier I got, and the hungrier yes. I got, the fatter I got. Yes. Um, uh, the, and the, the, the big change for me was the original 5-2 diet that, uh, from Michael Mosley. That, you yeah. know, um, uh, looking back on it, it was imperfect, but it got me thinking. And then I think bumping into you guys really started me on the low-carb journey. What's interesting is everything that you've described in terms of the food addiction and the mental health actually plays identically well into cardiometabolic health. They're not separate. So if you if people follow your program, they won't just be better uh, mentally, but they'll be better physically. They'll reduce their blood pressure, they'll reduce their waist, their mood will improve, their sleep will just as you've described. And that's exactly my finding. Uh, I'm in my early sixties now. Yeah, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life, and I'm fitter yeah. than I was in my thirties. And my ambition now. Um, Karen's kids and my kids are starting to produce little sprogs, is to be able to do absolutely everything with my grandchildren that I used to do with my children, because that's a meaningful fitness. I mean, HbA1c, hypertension, all these metrics, yeah. they don't really mean very much in terms of your everyday life. But exactly. being fit and healthy, sleeping well, enjoying life, and getting yeah. the most out of it, those are something that I really, you know, I, I can... Priceless. <laughs> priceless absolutely priceless yeah. so again yeah. you've, you've touched on this but um if people want to reach you where's the best place 
So the, the place I most hang around is on Twitter at Jen underscore Unwin. Um, but the, the, there is um, a website, forkintheroad.co.uk, and you can mess it, message through the website if you actually want to reach me um, direct. Or, I mean, that would be a good way if you're interested in the November weekend, um, profits to the PHC. And it's an intensive weekend teaching you all this information. You get all the food and all your accommodations included. And it's in the beautiful Lake District. Yeah. yeah if you're interested in that, maybe message through forkintheroad.co.uk and we'll get you some information. Brilliant. Um, what I can say is uh, on my journey, there have been some people who have absolutely inspired me. And you and David, thank you so much. You are right up there. Uh, it's helped me on my personal health journey and it's really helped us create a prolongevity programme. And um, all that you guys do and all of it in your own time, at your own cost, for free, out of passion and commitment, um, that's very special in, in these days. So I think all of us owe you a huge debt of, of gratitude. And if we can support you in some small way, we absolutely we absolutely should. Um, I will link to everything you've discussed um, and we'll put out some little snippets. And certainly um, as we get closer to November, if it's helpful to put some more out, oh, we'll do that. Because, you know, thank you. why would you do? And thank you, Graham. Thanks so much. I I love to chat about it. And, you know, it, hearing you say that is is fuel to our fire you know if we can help one person feel better live live that life that they want to live that you know we'll carry on as long as we can fantastic if you enjoyed the podcast and want to find out more join our wellness and pro longevity facebook group don't forget to subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode and maybe share to friends and family who might benefit Finally, if you think you might need help with diabetes, heart disease, or any of the other diseases we discuss, then book a free consultation with Graham. There's absolutely no charge for this, and we would never put you under any pressure. What do you have to lose? Bye for now, and see you for the next episode.